This week on Unforgotten. Friends. He never knew a stranger, and I just remember him loving me. You know, I loved him. To love him, get my number. Uh, you know, <laughs> he could do it very well. You know, he was very private and just didn't want us to know or talk about his personal life. I mean, he, he loved the outdoors. We grew up with the same guys from kindergarten all the way through college. Day after Thanksgiving, and he said, tell Dad I'll meet him Saturday morning. Phone call. Dale Seegers saying that his truck was out there by. I was at work, and my dad never calls me. Reaction was the weirdest thing you could imagine. Because I was very active in the school. They didn't acknowledge that it was Mont's car. Took somebody away from a family that was loving and missed him every day. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. And any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. And now for part one of episode 26, Mont Hiley. Hey guys, and welcome back. Um, There's been a lot of Twitter, like, chatter this week about Danilo... Cavalcanti. Have you seen that, Stormy? I've seen a little bit. You know, I've been super busy with what I've been doing, but I've kind of glanced in a lot. And yeah, that that was all over the place. Oh my gosh. Did you see the video? I didn't yet. No. Uh-uh. Okay. So for those of you that don't know, Danilo Cavalcanti is in prison in Pennsylvania for murder. A pretty vicious murder, actually. He stabbed his girlfriend something, I think, like 50 times. Oh, it's crazy. Heavens. In front of her children, or an ex-girlfriend maybe, but her children actually are the ones that like ran to a neighbor's house, I think, and told them what was going on. So he was in prison, and he escaped by their outside and having their yard time. And he goes down this hallway that's like going to a door to lead inside the prison, and he Spider-Mans his way out. He, like, yeah, puts his hands like, on one side and his feet on the other. Yeah. And he, like, climbs up the wall. That's It's so amazing. I and just so can't you, even believe that anybody had, didn't think that somebody could do that. I know. And, <laughs> well, I, I mean, you think, really, who would have thought this? And so you're watching this video and you see this man. And he's, like, just above five feet. He's not very tall. So it's, a mm. like, a weird thing that he could stretch across this hallway anyway. But... Mm. He's like stretched across this hallway and you're watching this video and it's like he's going up and then you just don't see him anymore. He goes to the roof 
But you know, on TV, I know, terrible comparison. <laughs> they have like guards all around the perimeter that are watching all of this yeah. stuff. And in my head, I'm thinking, aren't there like guard shacks and stuff like raised up where they can see down into the yard and all this stuff? Did they not see this guy? Did he crawl across the roof? Who didn't see him climbing over the, the edge? But were there? Know, not, was the, did the fence not go around the whole building? How did yeah, he get you'd out? Think. And the fact it wasn't there. So I shouldn't say that I didn't see it at all. I just didn't really get a chance to look at it. But wasn't there a guy standing? Wasn't there a guard standing yes. like not very well, far from no, where he was? It wasn't a guard. It looked like another inmate. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, so maybe he was keeping watch. Well, it kind of looked like that because it's like you see this other inmate walk up to the outside of the hallway and he's like mm-hmm. facing the opposite way. And you see Danello going down the hallway and it's like as soon as he disappears, the other guy runs off super fast. That's just crazy. Yeah. And this went on for, I mean, the manhunt was on for a long time. And it took them forever. Yeah. And I missed it. Uh, something came out where they said, you know, um, they believed he might be in possession of some kind of item that was giving him the advantage. And my thought was, yeah, an invisibility cloak, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Because he's clearly evading everybody. But in reality, it was probably a cell phone or something where he could kind of keep track of where they were looking. That's true. Yeah. You know, I wonder, huh? A radio, maybe. I don't know. Could be. He had to yeah. have some way to know where they were looking to be able to avoid him for that long. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I just realized I called it Twitter, but it's X now. What do you is call that? Is it called X or is it still yeah. Twitter and they just no. have it? Oh. No, it's rebranded. It's oh, X okay. now. But, you know, you send tweets. But what do you what do you call those We now? call them X's? Uh, X's and O's. X's and O's. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. That's, uh, everybody's still calling crazy. it Twitter and tweets and stuff. And obviously I still call it Twitter. Yeah. I actually thought... I needed to go download the app again, though I've had it the whole time, because I was like, what is this X thing on my phone? (laughs) Everybody knows that I'm not very um, savvy when it comes to posting things at times. So, No, you're just wonderful. You're doing great. (laughs) I'm getting better. I'm getting better with the Twitter X deal. I'm getting better. Yeah. It just takes a little practice. I'm still not wonderful at it, but I've, I've gotten a lot better. Thanks to ACCA. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Getting a lot better. And I just yeah. realized, actually, as we were talking, obviously this week we're diving into Mont Holly's case. And I didn't do any research about Macon County. You're kidding me. No. So well. we'll have to hit that up on the next one. I did all the research on Mont. That's true. And I was too busy to help out. And so, I mean, we've both researched Mont's case. Yeah. This episode is courtesy of Sellers. In the first episode, before we really got to the heart of Mont's case, we wanted to get to the heart of Mont's case. Mont. Exactly. Yep, exactly. we've spent a lot of time kind of digging into who Mont was and talking to his family and getting a better idea because, like we've talked about before, the people that are involved in these cases, in the unsolved cases, they get lost in the rumor mill. They get passed along as though they're stories and just a work of fiction. And it's not true. And Mont's case was covered in the media fairly extensively when the search was going on. 
but there was really nothing about who Mont was. Um, and then once he was found, the coverage started dropping off because there wasn't as much news coming out. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I've tried really hard to find old news broadcasts and I can't find anything online. And I, I know it's because a lot of that stuff's been archived. WSFA did some coverage, but all of their archives have been turned over to the Department of Archives, and that stuff <sighs> hasn't all been digitized yet. Yeah, that takes a long time to do that. I remember, yeah. gosh, it was last year, I think, about this time that we learned that, right? Yeah, and it's still not there. So um, they have a limited collection that's available online. Um, you could probably go there um, and look at it. Yeah. But we're working on limited time as it is. Yeah. Um, Anyway, we did find some stuff, and I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know Mont through his family. I know. You almost feel like you really do know him, don't you? Yes. And we were able to talk to, you know, some of his friends and neighbors and people that knew him. And we didn't go on the record with any of those, but they've given us permission to share different, you know, quotes and things from them. and. I think Mont sounds exactly like somebody I would have been friends with, (laughs) you know. So it's just been really interesting and entertaining because it's pretty funny. Some of the stories, some of the stories, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So let's dive right in. Sounds good. Born on December nineteenth, nineteen sixty nine, Mont F. Holly the Fourth, affectionately known as Little Mont was the youngest of three children born to Mont F. Holly III and Gail Holly. With captivating blue eyes and dark brown hair, Mont was a striking young man. His contagious smile, infectious laughter, and witty comebacks only added to his natural charisma. Mont was the quintessential Southern boy and embraced the Southern trifecta of hunting, fishing, and football, namely the Crimson Tide, with a fervor that was unmatched. Mont was considered very popular. He was a popular guy. He was a good-looking guy. He played football and baseball. So, well, I think he played basketball, too. He had lots of friends. He never knew a stranger. You know, he it worried me because he'd always stop and talk to somebody. Of course, it was not as bad then as it is now. I think that his friends were really nice kids, basically. Some of them a little questionary, but <laughs> most of them were pretty good. Like his sisters, Lisa and Leanne, Mont attended Montgomery Academy, as everybody knew, as the Academy, a private kindergarten through 12th grade school that opened its doors in 1959. You know, and there was always an air about you when you'd say, I, I go to the Academy, you know. We didn't ever say Montgomery Academy, it was just the Academy. It was during his years at the Academy that Mont met most of the people that he considered his closest friends. Mont, he, he grew up with the same guys. From kindergarten all the way through college, they all lived together. They were best friends. They did everything together, and they were still tight-knit even after college. Mott became involved in sports at the academy in junior high school and excelled as a multi-sport athlete throughout his high school career, participating in baseball, basketball, and football. A search through the newspaper archives turned up various articles, Montgomery Advertiser, September 1984. 
Tailback Hamp Green III rushed for 180 yards and scored two touchdowns, and quarterback Mont Hiley ran for two scores to lead Montgomery Academy to a 28-0 win over St. James in a junior high school football game. Montgomery Academy defeated Holtville 21-0, 11-yard run by Hamp Green, who also kicked three extra points, an 87-yard pass from Mont Hiley to Jay Morgan, and an 8-yard run by D. Fitzpatrick. Mont's senior year at the Academy was one for the books. Not only did the football team win the 1987 1A state championship, their first and only, according to the Academy website, but he was also named to the all-tournament basketball team. The Montgomery Advertiser interviewed an Academy offensive lineman, Frank Thomas, who they characterized as the Academy's smallest offensive starter. And in the interview, Thomas said, It's a pleasure to play beside Clinton Segrist. He's just a big, tough guy. I definitely got some contact last year on the scout team. With people like Hamp and Mont Holly coming at you, you hit to survive. That's a pretty telling quote there on their personality and their style. I know. It sounds like um, they were probably pretty aggressive. Yeah. But you kind of have yeah. to be in football. You do. Yep. 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 Uh, he just, uh, the guys that he played football with, he mm-hmm. went to school with, all remained friends. And they remained friends because yeah. when they were playing football, they won the state championship. And it's the only time that school has ever won one. After graduating from Montgomery Academy, Mont's journey took him to the hallowed grounds of the University of Alabama, along with several of his fellow Academy teammates and friends, and into the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, a fraternity that prized itself on being true gentlemen. Fun fact, Sigma Alpha Epsilon is not only one of the oldest and largest fraternities in the U.S., but was also founded in 1856 at the University of Alabama. Mont graduated from the University of Alabama with a degree in finance. I think when I saw that their kind of catchphrase or tagline or whatever is was true gentlemen, mm-hmm. I thought, what an ironic tagline for it, it Mont is. to have been in because uh. it just kind of sounds like overall kind of what he's been described as, you know, but also something like he probably would have gotten a big kick out of. Mm -hmm. I agree. Because he also had that kind of like sarcastic personality. Like, yeah, I'm a gentleman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I was telling um, Lisa and Leanne earlier that, you know, we've never met Mont. We didn't know Mont. And through researching Mont's case as extensively as what we have and talking to them as often as we do, I feel like I do know Mont, even though I don't. And it's funny because you feel like you get an idea of their personality and who they were and you read things like this and you're like, yep, he would have totally laughed at that. And then you can ask them about it and they'd be like, yep, he would have thought that was hilarious, you know? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. When you get involved in these cases, you get connected. Right. And invested. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that's why it's so important to us that people realize that there are real people in the cases that we discuss because they, these people are very important to their families, obviously, but they're also important to other people. They become very important to us, everybody that we talk about. And I don't know, it just probably because we've been working on his case and we have been 
kind of building up to this episode from the very beginning of Unforgotten, this has been one of the tougher episodes to work on. Yeah, I would agree. That, yeah, we want to get it right. Mm-hmm. And there's so much to it. And I mean, like all the cases that we have covered and will cover and share with everybody, you know, there we, we want them all solved. But sometimes we are so um, involved in some of them because we knew them from the beginning or for whatever reason, we got to know the family more, you know, it just, they, they are family. Exactly. I guess that's, yep. that's what it boils down to. They're family. Yeah. And we just w- really want to see these cases solved. Exactly. Mont was more than just a sports enthusiast and an outdoorsman. He was a free spirit who charted his own course, living life entirely on his own terms. He was very friendly and outgoing and polite and kind, but he was also cocky and, you know, and we came from a pretty well-to-do family. So, you know, he dressed well. He had good taste, expensive taste. (laughs) I mean, we still have some of his, like, gear from when he was snowboarding, like that mountain wear gear. It's pretty expensive, but it lasts a long time. And while many of Mont's friends began settling down, like many young adults, Mont enjoyed a good time. Maybe sometimes a little too much of a good time. That's not uncommon. But just young people in general sometimes don't think through their decisions very well. Yeah. Not uncommon, you know. (laughs) But Mont didn't appear to ever really get in any major trouble. You know? No, uh uh-uh. He just was content living his best life. Yeah. He wasn't bothering anybody. He was just traveling around, doing his own thing and, you know, loving his sister's kids and being involved with them, spending time with his family and his friends and very free spirit. Um, you know, Lisa told us he was very private. He didn't want anybody knowing what was going on in his life. Um, yeah. didn't, don't ask him about his personal life. He wasn't going to tell you. I mean, he'd get mad at me because I'm nosy. I can't help it. That's why I'm in the job I'm in. I can be in everybody's business. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And he'd get so aggravated because I'd ask a million questions. And, you know, he was very private and just didn't want, you know, didn't want us to know or talk about his personal life, if you will. Um, I think a lot of boys are like that. I think so too. You know, girls tend to chatter a little bit more about what they're a little more dramatic, you know, what's going on in the, you know, yeah. What's going on in their lives and what they love and what they hate, and, yeah. you know, but guys are pretty, generally speaking, are generally pretty straightforward and you get what you get. Exactly. Oh my gosh. I have a 15 year old now. And I can ask him about things that are going on and um, or about, hey, are you and this girl still talking? Just because I'm mom, I want to know. And he is just like, nah. <laughs> and that's yeah. it. Like, that's the extent of it. Yeah. Well, Isn't that crazy? Say, well, what happened? I don't know. You know, our youngest can come in from school and I can say, Hey, how was your day? And she's got a million things she's going to tell me about. 
She's going to tell me about mm-hmm. every friend she made, everything they talked about, everything that happened. My son yeah. comes in. Yeah. I can say the same thing. Hey, how was your day? It was. Mm. I'm going to my room. Yep. <laughs> you know? And yeah. so I think that's just a guy thing. A like, grunt. <laughs> uh, it's just stay out of my business. Like, whatever. Yeah. Especially once they get older and think they're an adult. And or are an adult because, you know, mm-hmm. at this point, Mont really was an adult and was doing his own thing. So I think yeah. that's just a guy thing. Yeah. You know, they don't really yeah. want to share things like that. And um, there is always exceptions to the rules. But, yeah, I think that in general, I, I'm you're spot on. Yeah. I'm a lot like my mom or, you know, we're loud. Leanne's like my dad, you know, a little more passive. Me and my mom are a little more aggressive. And, you know, I think he, he, when we began to get into his business, he would leave. You know, he just did not want us in his business. You know, I don't know if that's because he thought maybe we'd be disappointed, you know, by maybe some of the things he was doing. I don't know. He began traveling with a construction company and was constantly out of town, venturing to new areas. He spent time in various states, including Colorado, Texas, and Florida. And Utah. I forget about that one. Oh, yeah, that's right. And Utah. He purchased a home on Cloverdale Road, where he lived until he began traveling for work, at which point he began renting out his home. But he went to the university in, in four and a half years because he had to stay for the football season. His major was finance. I don't know why, because he, he did the construction when he built our house. And the Lowe's. Uh, he went to Colorado with his friend, and they lived out there for a, a year, I guess, a year. And he went to work for EMJ and construction, and he left and went to Mississippi, Dallas, Utah. So he was gone like three years after college. He went down to Florida. I don't think he went for a job. I don't know. But then he he came home and he said he needed to find a job. He said, I've got an interview with this guy in North Carolina. Yeah. They flew him out there. He came home. He said, I think the interview went really well. The Hiley family was a close-knit family, as we've spoken always spending time together. So even though Mont's career took him on the road, he frequently returned to Montgomery to spend time with his family and friends. came home, and he stayed with us through the, the Thanksgiving holidays. He, we went out to our daughter to help Leanne, and we had Thanksgiving. And then he came home, and he and my daddy watched all the football games Thanksgiving Day. Mont had several nephews whom he adored. Lisa and Leanne, his sisters, shared photos with us of Mont and their kids at the lake house laughing and playing at family gatherings. And the love and adoration are evident, not just on Mont's face, but on theirs. Oh my gosh, he'd blow in, he'd come down to the dock, he'd throw them all off the dock, you know, one after the other. And of course, you know, I want more, do it again, do it again, until somebody belly flopped and started to cry and then Mont disappears. I mean... He'd get him fired up. And then he came out one year for Christmas to California, and uh, our kids shared rooms. And so he stayed in one of the bunk beds, and he'd go out in the street with the kids in the morning, and they'd play street hockey. So they'd play street hockey all day. 
So he would run around with them playing street hockey until somebody cried, and then he's out of there and he's in the house. It was hilarious. Sadly, Leanne's youngest, her daughter, never really got the chance to know her uncle as Mont passed before she was born. I think that, well, first of all, Lisa shared some of the funniest stories with us about Mont playing with the kids. And <laughs> I know. I think it's hilarious yeah. because it's a total uncle move that he would like play with them until they, you know, started crying until somebody started crying. And Basically. then it was like, I didn't do yeah. it and ran off. And yeah, you can just picture it, can't you? I mean, like, it's like the typical. Exactly. Like, really, really razz them and, and play hard with them until they just. <laughs> it's basically like how my youngest brother and my son are because they're not that. Mm. There's only like a 10 year age difference in them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how old my brother is right now off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> He was born in 1998. Let me add this up. Let me double check myself. Oh, 20. He's 25 now. Oh, it is 10. I did good. That's very good. Yeah. Um, So, oh, thank goodness. So, and even though their kids were really young, Lisa shared with us about the fact that Mont had a pretty big impact on their lives, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that happens when you have somebody that spends time with kids you know they remember that even when they are young and they the kids all wore Mont's state football number in their sports and it's funny because even though my kids didn't really know him well they all wore his football state number so they all wore number 15 when they were able to like personalize their shoes They would put his initials on the, like, tongue of the shoe, and then they would put his number on the back of the shoe. That I thought was just cool, yeah. They put his initials on their shoes, and um, I think that's an awesome way to honor Mont, because he was, you know, big into sports and all of that, and I think that's really awesome. Yeah, I do too. You know, and she... She shared that, um, you know, not only were they kind of, that was kind of the way to keep connection with Mont without having known him really well, because, you know, he was gone by the time they were getting old enough to really, you know, get to know him. But, you know, then, so that this is the kind of thing that kind of kept that alive for so long. And now as they're getting older, they're starting to learn more and wanting to listen to podcasts and in interviews and read things now about Mont just so that they understand his full story and what what is known anyway about him. Yep. Well, we just now have told them more of the truth about what happened because when they were little, you know, there's no way that they'd understand that. So they've listened to some of the podcasts and have read the stuff that's been written so that they're at least better educated. But it was really important to all of them to, you know, make sure that they, that they call it pass on the legacy. And I remember when we first, it was either when we first posted, it wasn't the first post that we made about Mont, because at the time that we made the first post, his name had actually been submitted to us by someone who wasn't the Hollies. But we got connected yeah. with the Hollies um, not long after that. And mm-hmm. so we did an updated post because some of the information wasn't accurate. And 
you'll see that when you're going back. We've talked about that, that older newspaper articles have conflicting information. And because it was kind of hard to find information on Mont, um, being that it was 20 years ago, some of the information was outdated. Maybe there had been updates, but they weren't available online. Right. So we did the updated um, case card initially, and then we did the case card series. So as we were doing that, um, Leanne's daughter actually followed us on Instagram. And so, and if she listens to this, I'm sorry, I ratted you out to your mom um, <laughs> because I wanted to make sure that Leanne knew ahead of time, hey, this popped up today just in case there was anything that we had shared that maybe they didn't know. Because that's always something that we want to be sensitive of. Like the family knew that it was right. coming out. And um, like obviously Mont's sisters and Mont's parents knew that we were doing this. And but we also want the kids to have a heads up too. Because you don't want to cause any undue stress or um, sadness. You know, it, because it's sad. Right. It's yeah. heartbreaking. And it is. She's and you don't know when we're doing the, these things, you know, sometimes we can't reach family. So, but you never know unless you've actually contacted every family member who's going to be listening. You have to be sensitive no matter what. And we just happen to know about this particular one. right. <laughs> and we try to be cognizant of how we word things so that it mm-hmm. is in maybe a more sensitive manner. Yeah, they have that whole engage engage with empathy right. is so profound. And I'm so glad that that's a big thing now that people are paying attention to. Because something, some things you read are just not that way. And you think, why no. would they put that out there where the family can read that? That is so unnecessary. Um, yep. You know, and in some cases, the families have okayed it and that's fine. But when they haven't, mm-hmm. that's a problem. And mm-hmm. what Leanne actually said was that she knew already. Um, and it was because her daughter had not got the chance to meet Mont and she was kind of missing out on the fact that she didn't have those same memories and she was wanting to learn more about him. And that just broke my heart for her that this was how she would have to get to know him. And we've talked with families before who, you know, this is his niece who, Obviously, you know, she didn't get to meet him, you know, even beyond that. There's sometimes there's siblings that don't get to, you know, didn't get to meet or mm-hmm. didn't get to or know children. their family member or children. Yeah, yeah. For that matter. Yeah. I mean, we have a couple of good examples of that. Yeah. There's several um, children that were young, very, very young and have no memories of their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just sad. It shouldn't have to be that way. You know, there's right. there are some cases where sometimes people maybe got involved or mixed up in things that they wouldn't have otherwise been involved in, and it resulted in their death. And you maybe don't understand why it happened, but you see how it could have occurred. Yeah. But when you are looking at a situation where you just really can't think of anything that would have brought it on, it makes it even harder. And we don't know. You know, there could have been something in the background that we don't know about. Yeah. Risk factors. Everybody has different level of risk factors. And 
Some are very low and some are involved in things that make the risk factors high. One thing that we learned, you know, like we mentioned earlier through Mont's family is that Mont met most of his lifelong friends at the academy. They all started school together and um, that those friends that he made through the sports that he was involved in and being in school together, those were the friends that he kept through his adult life. I think many of them actually all went to Alabama, um, maybe not everybody. And then there were a few that he actually met, um, you know, after, um, right. after the fact that like once they maybe got to college or maybe they met in high school. And we talked about this with Lisa a little bit that when you're, I think guys more so than girls, when they start playing sports, a lot of times they start playing when they're younger and they basically run into the same group of guys all the time, whether they're playing another team or not, especially in these areas, in areas like Montgomery, Macon County, wherever there's smaller schools. Um, I mean, Montgomery Academy was 1A, so that's a small school. And oh, yeah. so they, they are seeing the same people. So they're running in these crowds kind of together, and they kind of just form these bonds. It doesn't matter always if you're on the other team. You're seeing each other out on the weekend, whatever. You just build these relationships. But Mont's friends weren't the only people that he met at Montgomery Academy. Nope, not at all. Um, we'll get into it in the next episode when we start talking about actually what happened. But Mont's Tahoe was actually found on the Seagrass property in Shorter, which was about two miles away from the Holly Camp. And so while we were talking about Mont's history, we also kind of wanted to get into a little bit of the Seagrass history and how Mont was also connected to them. Um, because it's something that isn't always discussed and it's worth mentioning. For sure. Yeah. And to make it, you know, to understand the area, I mean, this little town was full of Seagrass family members. So I guess maybe the reason that it's kind of important to talk about too is because their reaction was a little bit odd. Yeah. Considering that, they had known Mont for a while, obviously, as we'll talk about, but they didn't, they weren't really involved. And it was something that struck me as odd. And maybe yeah. once everybody else kind of hears it, they'll maybe understand too. But when you have a child, even if they're an adult that's missing and you have a large scale search that's going on, you don't really expect people to not necessarily cooperate. And that's right. kind of the vibe that we've been given, that they weren't really cooperative. And they, well, we'll get into it a little bit more in the next episode, obviously. But, you know, they hardly acknowledged that they really knew who he was at the beginning. Right. So the Seacrest family is large by any measure and has a longstanding history in the shorter community. Bermer Chandler and Minnie Braswell Seagrest had eight children and roughly 30 grandchildren. That's a large family. That's a like, huge family. That's <laughs> like eight children is big. You know, I mean, I've seen a few that are bigger, but eight children is big. And then you add all the grandchildren. And by now, great grandchildren, I'm sure, you know. My mom's parents had six kids, and I know how 
large our family gatherings are. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine if we added two more in. <laughs> yeah. Know? Growing up, my one of my best friends, she was from a family of, I believe there was nine kids altogether Oof. to start with. And yeah, Whew, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> but I always thought it was kind of fun, you know, and their their parents did, you know, they weren't one of the statistical people who, you know, ended up divorced or anything. I loved They actually our stayed together forever. Yeah, I love our gatherings, even though mm -hmm. there was not really a whole lot of room to walk. Yeah. I mean, it was so much fun. Yeah. It's still so much right. fun. We don't, now that everybody's older, we don't get to get together as often, but it's yeah. always a good time. Yep. I agree. Those, I mean, even, even in smaller families it is, but I, I, in some ways I almost was a little bit jealous of my girlfriend because, you know, they just had family everywhere yeah. all the time you know they were in and out of the house some of them when I was younger of course were still in school at the time and so you know there were lots of kids in and out of the house all the time and I actually learned to drive believe it or not from um in one of their uh, what are they the Dodge little van things that they kind of look like uh, the Volkswagen vans but they're Dodge oh kind of like anyway. Scooby-Doo van uh, kind of yeah <laughs> And that was theirs, so that was kind of fun. Anyway, a little tidbit. The Seacrest family tree continued growing, and a look at the current property map of Macon County shows that they are still a prominent family in Macon County. You added it in there. Mm-hmm, you did. So there's a little bit of history there. <laughs> By default, because we're talking about the Seacrest. <laughs> Dale Segrist was the second of three sons born to Forrest Chandler and Ella Segrist. He was born and raised in Shorter. He married Betty, also from Shorter, in 1964, and they have two sons, Philip and Mike. He graduated from law school in 1967 and then moved to Montgomery, where he began practicing law with a local firm. And just a few years later, he and Betty moved back to Shorter. Elected as a Fifth Circuit judge, which covered Macon, Tallapoosa, Chambers, and Randolph counties. In 2001, after 18 years of service, Dale hung up his judge robe and re-entered the world of private practice by opening Segrist Law Firm. And just as a side note, um, Dale actually has a website, which is pretty helpful because he apparently is kind of into ancestry. Um, yeah, stuff. And, it's really interesting. Yeah, um, and that's how... We got a lot of this information on kind of the Segrist family history. Right. Mike Segrist was the youngest of the two children born to Dale and Betty. He attended the academy through 1986, which was during the same time as Mont, though he was a year below Mont. And the two were actually teammates on at least the 1986 baseball team based on a yearbook photo from the academy. You guys know that, um, so when Mont played baseball in 1986, obviously you knew that, but that Mike Segrist was on that baseball team? Yeah, I think he was on the football team too. Oh, it's school together. They all grew up together. Yeah. Mike transferred to Tallahassee High School in 1987 for the duration of his high school career. After high school, he went to Faulkner University and worked in the insurance industry for several years before eventually going to law school and joining the family law practice. Mike recently became elected as a Macon County DA and took office at the beginning of 2023. 
It was so surprising to see that, like, when we were starting to research everything and voila, here he is running for DA. I know. And I didn't realize um, when we first started looking at this, I didn't realize that he actually went to the academy. Um, so I that was right. yeah. something I actually just found, like, last week in the yearbook photo. Right. Wade Seacrest, Dale's older brother, began his career at the Academy in 1960 as a math and science teacher. He served as an interim headmaster in 1967 until a new headmaster was appointed, at which point he became assistant headmaster and head of the mathematics department. By 1973, Wade had been appointed as the acting headmaster and remained in the position until 1985. Clinton Segrist is the son of Wade Segrist. He also attended the academy during the same time period as Mont and was in the same grade as Mike, which was a year below Mont. Both Clinton and Mont played for the academy at the same time, including on the football and baseball teams. And I came across an article that kind of indicated that maybe Clinton also played basketball, but it wasn't entirely clear, so I'm not completely sure. Um, but possibly also basketball. Mm, okay. And Clinton graduated from the academy in 1989. So you have Wade, who is the headmaster while Mont's at the academy. And then you have Clinton and Mike, who have played on sports teams with Mont. Also went to school with Mont. Obviously, they know him and... I think that probably Mont's truck being found at the Seagrass maybe wouldn't have necessarily been a surprise because he knew them, you know. Right. One of our sources says what they think is that more likely than not, Mont assumed, you know, or thought, kind of rekindled or struck up an old friendship once the Hollies bought the camp out there since it was so close. Exactly. And yeah. You know, that County Road 30, you get off the interstate, you take County Road 30 straight to where the Holly Camp was. And so... Right. And in between there... You pass by the secret. Right. Right. So you're pat, they're right. likely passing each other anyway. And there's like a restaurant down there. And then there... So it's... That's kind of the main thoroughfare, at least between the two places. And so it would... You know, they would be seeing each other. So it wouldn't seem like that big of a jump to say... They were running into each other and probably it was like, oh, hey, I didn't know you were over here, you know, and then start hanging out. Yeah. I especially know the principal because I was very active in the school. I was president of the PTA, the sport, all that stuff. I, you know, I did. And I, that was I, Wade, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like we don't know each other. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. We never socialized with them, per se, but we were all in the same things together. I was in practice with Dale Segrist's uh, cousin. I think they'll live down shorter. And the guys I went in practice with when I first came to Montgomery in 1972, one of them was named Robert Lightfoot. And he was mm -hmm. from Shorter. He grew up in Shorter. He knew all the people in mm -hmm. Shorter. The family doc, he delivered all their babies, he set all their fractures, you know, he operated on them, he did everything. So, you know, we've known, we've known all those people ever since we've been in Montgomery. If it hadn't been for talking to the Hollies, though, we would have never known whose property Mont's Tahoe was found on because their names are never mentioned in the newspapers. Exactly. It's right. just listed as 
the property owner. And which is so odd. I mean, if you'd have read any other article about these kinds of things, it says, I mean, even if it doesn't mention like first names or, you know, all the information, which half the time they do now. Right. But you would think that they would have, where else would they have found it if it was there? I mean, you think of all the Seagrass that are along that Highway 30. Well, and the road right you across know. from their place is called Seagrass Lane. Yeah. I mean, why why bother not mentioning that, it right? at that point? And yeah. it's not like people didn't know because there was this massive search going on. So yeah. it, it yeah. was common knowledge. Um, and we get we'll comment. They don't be, the locals know where it was. So I don't really understand why it wasn't in the paper. Um, and to me, that is odd. It's kind of a red flag, I guess, because it seems just intentional weird that yes, intentional that it wasn't listed mm-hmm. because you have this search going on and it's common knowledge and easily attainable information. It's not like really anybody would have had to dig too hard to get that. So I don't really understand why it wasn't included. But then, you know, we talked to the Hollies and they were telling us kind of the timeline of how things occurred and where everything was. And then you find out, you know, well, Dell was a former judge and now now Mike is the DA, but, you know, that's a new thing. But it makes you wonder, is it because who they were that that's why it wasn't out there? Um, but then you also think there's are some gaps in Mont's timeline. And we're going to get into this in the next episode. Um, but somebody had to see Mont on that Friday night. So how did his truck end up at the Seagrass property? And one of the newspapers that we read said um, that his truck was found on a neighboring, like on another property, but the property owners claim they don't know anything. And um, Dale called and told Dr. Howley that Mont's truck was there. And then when they get there, um, he said, you know, they didn't know whose truck it was until they looked at the ID in the wallet because Mont's wallet was still inside. The keys were in the ignition. The wallet was inside. Um, there were several things that were still inside of his Tahoe. So right. he's saying, I didn't even know whose vehicle this was until I looked at the ID. Right. Which... <sighs> Yeah, I I don't understand. But we know that Mont's Tahoe was seen going into the Seagrass property that Friday night. Right. And that there was get-together there that Friday night. There were people there. It's not like his Tahoe was driving into an empty spot. So somebody knew his Tahoe was there on Friday night. Yeah, exactly. But it took until Sunday for the highlights to become aware of that. Right. So somebody somebody saw Mont on Friday night. Now, we can't say that that was Mont that was driving his Tahoe, but somebody knows how his Tahoe got there. Yeah, somebody had to. Right. And it, it's not like where it was was really off, you know, 
off-road way back where nobody could have seen him, you know, pull in or park or, you know, any of that. Well, supposedly was... there was another vehicle following him. Yeah. So yeah. You, somebody, somebody, I'm not going to say following him because we don't know if he was driving. Somebody, there was another vehicle but the car following was the behind Tahoe, him. you know. Yeah. So it was, somebody knew the Tahoe was there before Sunday. And if that's the case, and you have, here are people that you have known since elementary school, shouldn't there be a bigger concern whenever you don't show up to get your vehicle on Saturday? And then on Sunday, instead of those same people that you've known since elementary school, calling people to let them know, mm-hmm. your dad comes down and he makes the call and says, yeah. I didn't know whose vehicle it was until I looked at the ID, except for those people that you went to elementary school with knew whose Tahoe it was. Yeah. The reaction was the weirdest thing you could imagine. Number one, they didn't acknowledge that it was Mont's car to begin with. And it wasn't a planned trip on Sunday. Not according to Miss Gill. Miss Gill said that um, Dale's wife told her she they never went to what the Seagrass camp was called Granny's. She said, Dell's wife said, we never come down here anymore, but he decided today you wanted to come pick pecans or something. Yeah. So it was like yeah. a spur of the moment trip. Which was Sunday uh, is when uh, we got a phone call from uh, Dale Seagrass saying that his truck was out there behind his mother's house, which was Mike Seagrass' grandmother. We went out and uh, they were out picking pecans up. They had a lot of pecan trees in the front yard. And his wife commented to Gail that they never went out there. And uh, why they went out there that day, I have no idea. Maybe it is entirely coincidental, but it just adds a certain level of question to the entire situation. Right, exactly. Because after that, they don't really, I'm not even saying they don't really, because they don't at all help in the search efforts. Yeah. They don't, no. So next time, we're going to dive into the day that Mont left and kind of what took place from the time Mont left his parents to the time that he was actually found. Well, Dad and I are supposed to go hunting Saturday morning, so I'm just going to go ahead and go out there. I was in the kitchen. Our house is open and everything and he said i'm gonna go on out to the farm and he said tell dad i'll meet him saturday morning and I said, it was just on and it was in his pocket and, you know and he would have never left without his phone if anybody listening to this has anything they want to share we would appreciate any input you know ever since we started looking into mont's case we've had a lot of input on you know, Facebook especially, but on social media in general um, and messages and things. So, you know, it's not as if people completely don't want to talk about this at this point. You know, I would love to hear from any of you out there who would like to give us information on the case and maybe it would help investigators. That is exactly right. Because at least according to the letter that we got from the Department of Forensic Sciences, Mont's case is still open and active. And yep. according to the Hollies, um, SBI has told them that it's open and active. Um, 
you know, we requested a copy of Mont's autopsy and it was denied because it was. the Macon County District Attorney, before Mike was elected into office, said that it was an open criminal investigation. Yep. So all roads all roads point back to it being an open, active criminal investigation. Um, so that is correct. You know, just like Stormy said, if you got anything, send it in. And it would be great. Maybe we should make another. Yeah, maybe we should make another request now that we have a new DA. True story. See if we get a different True story, different response. You never know. Nope. If you have any information about the murder of Mont Holly, please contact Alabama State Bureau of Investigation at 334-676-7870 or the SBI Crime Hotline at 800-392-8011. You can also submit an anonymous tip on their website, which will be linked in the episode description. You can also send us a message via our website, ACCA social media pages, or send us an email. Number two, as the investigation proceeded, we were told that every individual that lived on County Road 30 was represented by Dale Segrist and they could not be interviewed without him being present. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.